welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears in my, my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Father, your word is glorious, it's amazing, it's heavy. Lord, as we look at the letters to the churches here, Lord, we know that these were written to actual historical churches in the first century, and yet as we read them, we see ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves and that we would um, take that knowledge that your Spirit has given us and turn 
and repentance and faith to Jesus. And we pray that for those who already know you this morning and have wandered in different ways. We're prone to wander. We feel it, prone to leave the God we love. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to turn. And we pray that for those who have gotten into more hardened patterns of habitual sin and have walked away from you, prodigal-type people, Lord, we pray that you would draw them to repentance. And we pray, Lord, for those who have never known you, Lord, we pray that this would be the morning that they would hear you, your son's clear voice in these letters, and turn. And Lord, we come before you to hear your word taught by a very flawed person because we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. If your spirit doesn't come, your spirit doesn't illuminate, your spirit doesn't speak, then this is all for nothing. But Lord, we come in hopeful anticipation that you will speak to your kids. We pray as we leave those doors that we will know that we have met with the living God. That's a work only you can do, and we pray that you do it this morning. For the glory of your Son, and all God's people said, Amen. So we're in the beginning of a series in the book of Revelation. This is the third week. We've started this section called the Letters of the Churches. There are seven historical churches that Jesus has dictated these little letters to. The whole book of Revelation is actually these seven churches as well, but there's these little customized spots here. We're going kind of briskly through Revelation because I want you guys to get the themes, get the picture. I think if we get bogged down in details, you're going to have a harder time. We want to take a brisk trip through so that it would be a book that you feel comfortable to enter again on your own, or we could take a second trip in a couple of years in a more in-depth way. But we looked at the first four churches. We looked at Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that loved the truth but didn't really love people. A church in Smyrna, which was a church that was suffering financially and physically, and even more worse things were going to come upon them. And then there was a church in Pergamum. They were really great at being courageous when they were faced with direct persecution, you know, curse Jesus or die type persecution. They were very faithful. Many of them were willing to die. But now that the persecution had passed, they were falling to cultural compromise. And then there was the church in Thyatira. They were super loving people, but they were way too loving to ever tell you the truth. And so these first four churches are churches that Jesus has, uh, I think you noticed last week, he gives an introduction to each church, and it's very personal. He says something about himself from chapter one that personally fits their need. And then he gives a penetrating analysis of them that starts with, I know. Then he gives them an exhortation, and then he gives them a benediction. And the benediction is a blessing taken from later in the book of Revelation. So that's the form for all these letters. We're going to look at these last three this morning. Good news is we're going to heaven the week after. Uh, Chapter 4 and 5 is a picture of what heaven's like now. And then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of parts of Revelation that you are probably expecting to hear about. We have global pandemic. We have civil unrest. We have the whole place on fire. We're ready for the book of Revelation. It's, It's such a strange thing, isn't it? the way things are right now. And I think the book of Revelation is really going to give you a way to know how to process the things that we deal with. That's what it did for the first century believers that received this letter. It gave them a way of processing the difficulties, the tribulations they went through. It's going to do that for us. Um, But one thing I just kind of feel led to say right now is one of the things I noticed that Jesus really loves in every one of these churches, no matter how messed up they are, you know what he loves? Perseverance. He loves perseverance. Some of these churches we looked at last week really messed up in a lot of ways, but he's like, you're holding on. And I just want to say this morning before I dig into this, and you guys are on the live stream as well, Jesus appreciates you holding on, even in a very flawed way. You hold on in your marriage, you hold on in your parenting, you hold on to your friends, you hold on to the church. 
you continue to follow Jesus, and he loves that. And what's interesting when you read through these letters is they can be deeply flawed, but he goes, I see that perseverance. I love that you hang on. So let's start with the first church we're going to look at this morning. It's the Church of Sardis. Church of Sardis was not that kind of church because the Church of Sardis was dead. The church in Sardis was almost entirely dead, which is wild because people would have looked at the church back in that day and thought that the church in Sardis was the lively, happening church where the Spirit was at work. But look at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. People thought this was the lively happening church where the spirit was a move. That's a church you need to be at. That's a church that's growing. Great things are happening. And Jesus goes, no, I know you. You're dead. Almost everyone in the church of Sardis was spiritually dead, meaning they weren't, they weren't true Christians. They weren't born again. And I say almost all of them because look at verse 4. He says, yet you have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in life, for they're worthy. So there, there were some believers there, but the church by and large was dead. And it's interesting because it doesn't say that the church was persecuted. It doesn't say that there was false teaching creeping in. They just were dead. They never came to spiritual life. And this is urgent, guys, because spiritually dead people aren't saved. If you look at Ephesians 2, it describes how we all started off before the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again. And it describes it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The the theological term for that is total depravity. And what total depravity means is not that before we were Christians, we were as bad as we possibly could be. Total depravity means that in every aspect of our being, we were dead to God. Before we became Christians, in every aspect of our being, we were dead to God. We were unthinking, unfeeling, unmoved, and unresponsive to Jesus. We were dead to him. And Jesus uses this really powerful image here in Revelation of the danger of somebody that's spiritually dead, the danger they're in. And he said it's it's like being asleep in a house that's about to be robbed. That's a scary image, isn't it? Being asleep in a house that's about to be robbed. Listen to him in verse 2. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in my sight, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you don't wake up, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Jesus is actually drawing on something that was in the history of the city of Sardis. So the city of Sardis was in a very secure place. It was up on a hillside, and on three sides it had sharp cliffs which gave them a ton of security, but it also made them really complacent against attacks. They, they thought they were, you know, couldn't be attacked because of these sharp cliffs. And that went fine most of the time until it didn't. In 547 BC, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came against the city of Sardis. And the Persians, they scaled the wall. They just scaled the side of the cliffs. And they came in an area where there weren't even anybody guarding because they thought, ah, nobody can come out those cliffs. These guys went right up the cliff, captured the city. Sardis lost everything. The the church in Sardis was just like their city, complacent, right? They were complacent. They were like their city. They were headed for a rude awakening. Jesus warns them that the thief is coming. How about you? You know, whether you're in this room or you're on the live stream with us, maybe you're like Sardis and maybe you feel like, 
There's really nothing urgent about responding to Jesus today. There's really nothing urgent about responding to Jesus. You might even be the kind of person, and we all hear people talk like this, that say, you know, if Jesus helps you get through your day, if Jesus helps you with the challenges of your life, that's great. That's good for you. Oh, that's great. You just do you, you know? That's wonderful, right? Or they might say something like, you know, I don't feel like I need Jesus right now, but I know he'll be there when I do need him. You know, we'll just kind of keep him on the shelf, and, you know, when I need him, I'm sure he'll be there. If that's you, you're complacent like Sardis. You're dead to Jesus. You're living as if Jesus is never going to return. And Jesus has a warning for you in verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Okay, guys, that was Jesus. I will come at you like a thief. I will come against you. Okay, we fear thieves more or less depending on how dangerous they are and about how much they could take from us. You're more afraid of a thief that would take your life than a thief that will take your bicycle, right? This is Jesus. How dangerous is this thief? How much can he take from you? He says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief when you, an hour you don't know, and I will come against you. But the cool thing, guys, and, and, and the reason we're gathered this morning, is today Jesus has come to give you something, not take something from you. He's come to give you a new life, Right? There's an opportunity today for a new life. If you're not a Christian yet, there's really something you need to know about Christianity, and it's this. If you come to follow Jesus, he'll take away your deadness to him. I think a lot of people that aren't Christians don't know that. They think, oh, I can never live like my Christian neighbor, really sweet people. I can never live like them because I just don't have it within me. And you know what? That's true. But the good news of the gospel is that you'll be born again. The inside of you will be changed. The deadness to Jesus he'll remove. You won't have to try to live the Christian life with your old dead heart that doesn't really want him. He's going to make you alive. Take a look at verse 1. He introduces himself as him who has the seven spirits of God. We saw the first week that that's an image for the Holy Spirit. Jesus introduces him as the one who has the Holy Spirit. If you become a Christian, you won't just be given new duties. You're going to be given new delights and desires. And those of you who are Christians here can totally attest to that, that when you became a Christian, you weren't just given new duties to do. You were given new desires, new delights. You were made alive to Jesus. You have new loves. You have new joys. You have new wants. You actually want Jesus, and you want to do the things that he wants for you because you love him. If you come to Jesus, you will be alive in a way you've never been alive to Jesus before. And he can do that because, verse 1, he's the one with the seven spirits of God. But there's more. Take a look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed with white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Super cool images here of the gospel, guys. Clothed in white garments. Clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, right? He, He talks about being written in the book of life. You guys realize at the end of the book of Revelation, when we get to it, the final judgment... The books are open. Those are the deeds that we've all done. These books are opened. You get judged by what's in the books. Or, he says, there was another book. And you're like, oh good, another book. And it's the book of life. And it's, it's a list of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ and will not be judged by what's in the books. How cool is that? You want to be judged by the books or that you're in the book of life? He said he'll never remove you from the book of life. He says, if you trust in Jesus, he will confess you before God the Father and his angels. How amazing is that? How good does it feel for somebody you really respect to kind of introduce you as their friend? 
Jesus will stand before God the Father and the holy angels and say, this is one of mine. Isn't that amazing? Amazing gifts of the gospel. Everyone thought that Sardis was the lively church. Jesus knew it was dead. But the real life, guys, was just down the road in a church in Philadelphia. Take a look at that in verse 7. But their life was hard because these guys were rejected by the religious. The the believers in in Philadelphia were rejected by their religious community. If you look at verses 7 through 8, you'll actually see these images of doors being open and shut. Take a look at it. And to the angel, the church of Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, and who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door that no one's able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and denied my name. There's this theme of opening and shutting doors throughout this whole thing. So what's going on in that church? Most likely what was going on in that church from the context is that a significant portion of the people that were in that church were Jewish converts. And so these were people that grew up Jewish, but now had realized that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And when they identified Jesus as the Messiah and started to follow him, what happened? They got kicked out of the synagogues. And we see that in the book of Acts. It happens over and over again. They got kicked out of the synagogue community. It was a huge price that Jewish believers had to pay in the first century to follow Jesus. Because to be kicked out of those local synagogues was also to be kicked out of the community in general. You might even be kicked out of your own family. And this caused some serious soul searching, right? You know, you're kicked out of the nice, big, historic, been going on for thousands of years synagogue. And you go down the street to this little church and he says, you have very little strength. It was very, you know, non-impressive what they were doing. And it caused some soul searching, right? It's like, did we get this right? You see that in the book of Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish converts to Christianity. And you can see that the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them because they're soul searching. They're like, maybe we may, maybe we should just go back to Judaism. This doesn't seem to be working out really well for us. Everything looks so weak over here. But Jesus assures them, guys, that they have not left the faith of their ancestors by following Jesus. They're actually being faithful to true Judaism. And you see that in verse 7. Jesus says he's the holy one. It means, it can mean one of two things. It could be holy one in the sense that he is Yahweh. It could be the holy one in the sense that he is the Messiah. He's both, right? That's in verse 7. And then he says that he has the key of David. He has the key of David because he is the true son of David, the king that will reign forever. And, And you see the imagery here. They're thinking that by being kicked out of the synagogue, they've somehow been kicked out of God's people and out of God's house. But Jesus is saying, think again. He's all, I am the Messiah. I have the key of David. Look at verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door. How beautiful would that be to people that just had the door shut on them, right? I put before you an open door which no one's able to shut. Jesus is saying, following me didn't get you kicked out of God's house, just the opposite. He goes on in verse 9 and he tells them, those Jews that kicked you out that don't believe in me as the Messiah aren't the true Jews and that isn't a true synagogue. And once again, I mentioned this last week, there's nothing anti-Semitic here. This is Jesus, a Jew, dictating to John, a Jew, this letter, okay? So there's nothing anti-Semitic here. This is just the fact that, uh, well, I'll read it. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, those who say they're Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet, that they will learn that I loved you. He's saying that the, the Jews that kicked you out that don't hold to Jesus as a Messiah aren't the true Jews, and it isn't a real synagogue. And he tells them in the next verse that you lost access to a fake synagogue so you could have access to the true temple of God. So you go from synagogue to temple. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have 
so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is a really cool image. So they just got kicked out of like a synagogue, which is like a local assembly, right, of Jewish people. They got kicked out of that. And he's saying, you got kicked out of that, but actually now you have entrance to the temple. (laughs) The temple is so much better than the synagogue, right? And he's saying, you actually have been welcomed into the temple. And it's not the temporary earthly temple, which, by the way, had already been destroyed at this time. If we're like in 90 AD, it was destroyed in 70 AD. He's not talking about the temporary temple. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple to come. Take a look at Revelation 21, 22. When the new world is, is made and, and this world is recreated, it says, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The temple is actually, there's no temple in the new Jerusalem to come because we're going to actually live in God's presence. The temple is a symbol of God's presence. We're actually going to live in his presence. There's no need for a temple. To, in some sense, the whole place is a temple because it is the dwelling place of God. And you, if you're a Christian, have become united with Jesus such that you are connected to the true temple and you'll never be removed. He says you're an immovable pillar. How beautiful would that sound to them? An immovable pillar. And he says, you're welcomed into Jerusalem. Better, better than a Jewish community in Philadelphia, you're welcomed into the community in Jerusalem. And not the temporary Jerusalem, right? But the one that's going to descend from heaven when the kingdom comes. You can read about that in Revelation uh, 21 and 22. That the new Jerusalem, which is a city that exists right now in heaven, coming down to earth and the world being made new. Perfect human community ruled by Christ. How about you? Have you been shut out? by people you love for following Jesus. Really common thing, even in this day. Probably get more intense as time goes on. But if you've been shut out by people you love for following Jesus, if you've been shut out by family or friends, or even like they were, they were shut out by religious people, right, for following Jesus. Have you been shut out? Have you been locked out? Have you been left out in the cold? Jesus is saying to you this morning, Behold, I set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. Jesus is saying, Following me didn't get you kicked out, just the opposite. It unlocked the presence of God. Some of you guys are probably familiar with Psalm 2710. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will let me in. That's what they were experiencing. Many of them experienced that quite literally. And Jesus is saying, you haven't been shut out. You've been welcomed home. Last one to look at, Church in Laodicea. Church in Laodicea, I think this is probably the most famous one of all of them. I think you probably heard the most sermons on this. Church of Laodicea was tepid and self-sufficient. The Laodiceans were self-sufficient, self-satisfying, and sickening to Jesus. They were sickening to him. Isn't that crazy? Take a look at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Laodiceans were famously lukewarm. Jesus compares them to water that's neither hot or cold. And what's really cool here, and this actually is the case, and we don't have the time to do all the details that are in each one of these letters because it's amazing, but he actually not only connects who he is to chapter 1 and then the benediction to what comes later in the book of Revelation, but in every letter he actually connects to historical things about that church. And this one's kind of interesting He's actually comparing something uh, that was happening in Laodicea, the city. 
Because Laodicea had a lot going for it, a very rich city, very prideful city. But they had a problem, and their problem was water. So the uh, river that they had closest to them, the Lycus River, was nice and cool water that, right near their city. But the problem was it was undrinkable. It was undrinkable because it was so contaminated with lime that it was just you wouldn't want to drink it. And so here's a city, super rich, and they can't even get water, you know. And so they had an aqueduct put in from some hot springs nearby, and that hot water would come down the aqueduct, but by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. That's what he's drawing on. You're like, how does he know all this? Because he's Jesus, okay? And so he has the perfect illustration from their own situation. Guys, cold water is refreshing. Hot water is useful, but lukewarm water is useless. And I'll put it to you this way. Some people like iced coffee, right? How many of you people like iced coffee? Some people like hot coffee. Only serial killers like lukewarm <laughs> coffee. Okay, I won't have you raise your hand. But if you like lukewarm coffee, you're probably a serial killer or something. Okay? It was nauseating to him. Jesus finds this church's tepidness towards him nauseating. And he should. He talks about spitting them out. He should. Guys, who can look at the beauty and the glory and the magnificence of Jesus and go, he's okay. Isn't that crazy? You guys all have things you're passionate about. And you try and tell people about it. You know, like, hey, I got this thing. You know, let me tell you about it. You know, or I saw this show and the person goes, eh. This church does that with Jesus. Eh, that's fine, right? It's like that old song, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's that kind of tepidness. And to Jesus, that's nauseating. He says he spit him out of his mouth. Why do they have such a weak response to Jesus? Jesus actually tells us why they have such a weak response to him. It's in verse 17. The Laodiceans were lukewarm because they were self-sufficient. Take a look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans were passionless towards Jesus because they just didn't see a real need for him. They're like, yeah, some people really need Jesus. You know, you've seen t-shirts, you need Jesus, bro, that kind of thing. Some of you, you know, you talk about somebody, man, that, that girl needs Jesus, right? These people are like, yeah, some people do need Jesus. I kind of did before. He helped me out. I don't need him as much anymore, right? That was the attitude of the Laodiceans, is they were self-sufficient. They could take care of themselves. They were doing all right now on their own. You know who they sounded like? They sounded just like their city. Laodicea was that kind of city. Laodicea was known for its wealth. They had a medical center. Their medical center was known for treating eye diseases. How does Jesus know all this? He's Jesus. Uh, For treating eye diseases. They were known for their fine clothing. They had these famous black tunics made of local black wool that they had. And they were rich, super rich. To give you an idea, this letter is written in the 90s A.D., In 60 AD, so about 30-something years before, an earthquake came and destroyed their city. And Rome said, hey, let us help you. We'll rebuild it for you. You know what they said? Now we got it. They were rich enough to rebuild their own city. They didn't want Rome's help, even though they were in the Roman Empire, right? They said, nah, we got it. Laodicea was a very self-sufficient, self-satisfied city, and so was the church there. And one of the things that you can notice about that church and the church of Sardis is that both of those churches were very much like their city. And I think we need to really think about, really us, think about how are we just like the city we live in? Because the, the air of Laodicea had crept into them. They looked at Jesus the way the city looked at Rome. I got this. 
I don't need you. Okay? And we need to really examine how do we look like our city? The Laodiceans were like, we're good. We got this. We don't need anyone's charity. To put it another way, guys, the Laodicean Christians were middle class in spirit. They were middle class in spirit. What do I mean by that? Jesus talks about the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you believe the second half of verse 17 for you, not for someone else. That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means that you believe the second half of verse 17 about you. Okay? What is middle class in spirit? That's the first half of the verse. I am rich. I have prospered. I don't need anything. The problem with the Laodiceans and many Christians today, and probably us because we live in that kind of a place, is that we're middle class in spirit. You say things like, I don't need anybody's charity. I don't need anyone's welfare. I earned everything I have. I can pay my own way. I won't take payment for someone else's work. Is that our culture? You never heard those words before? You ever heard those words in you? The problem is, guys, the gospel is exactly that. It is someone's charity, right? It's someone's charity to people that need charity, okay? The the fact of the gospel is you haven't earned it. Not then, not now. The fact of the gospel is you can't pay your own way. And you have to take payment for someone else's work. That's what the gospel is. And that's, guys, why the gospel is good news to the poor. Because when we're poor in spirit, we know that we need him. And, and guys, one day our poverty is going to be revealed. What a blessing that the church in Laodicea got to hear this straight from the mouth of Jesus. You're poor, you're pitiable, you're naked, you're blind. What a blessing that they would hear that now so that they could respond to the gospel so they don't hear that on the final day. Because there's a day coming, guys, when Jesus is going to return and he's going to give a perfect verdict, a perfect assessment of every single individual that's ever lived, including you. A perfect verdict on everything you have and haven't done. And it's going to be a true exposure of our poverty. And if it happens with us outside of Christ, it will be too late, okay? It will be too late. There's no like, oh, I see now. No, it'll be too late. That verdict will be permanent and decide our eternity. What a blessing to hear the verdict now and be able to respond to the gospel, right? What's cool is you can know the verdict now. You could actually know the verdict of the final day of judgment for yourself now. You can find it out by looking at God's law. Read the Ten Commandments. Read the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself, do I have the riches to stand on the final day? Anybody read the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody come away feeling awesome about yourself? No, right? This is Jesus' assessment. Once again, he's very good. And he's a good friend, right? He's a good friend to say, hey, bro, you don't have clothes on. You think you have clothes on, but you don't have clothes on. Hey, bro, you know, you think everybody thinks you're great. They don't. Okay? Like you're poor. You're, you're pitiable. You're, you're wretched. And, and he's such, it's such a blessing for him to show us that. And once we see that, that's one of the uses of God's law is that we would look at it. It's a mirror. I see, oh, wait, I'm naked. Oh, wait, I'm poor. Oh, wait, I'm blind. And then what? And then I'm ready to take Jesus' offer. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
Isn't that awesome? He says, you can have this from me. Okay, so, okay, well, how do I buy it, you know? You're like, oh, I get it. Okay, so this is a religion, and, you know, I do some works, and at some point he gives me these things. No. Did you notice he didn't tell you how to buy it, right? What did he say? Repent, right? He said, repent. It's free, guys. This is a free gift of the gospel, and it's already been bought by him. It's something that we get by coming to him. Repent and believe, and it's yours. It's so cool because Jesus says, you guys think you're so rich, You think you got it. You think you can take care of yourself. You're poor, but you know what? I'm going to give you gold. And I'm going to give you gold that's been tested by fire. What's he talking about here? Jesus already lived a perfect life that can totally withstand the final judgment. Like his life, solid. Already tested by fire. It's going to totally pass the final judgment. And that life, that record, if you trust in Jesus, is yours. You show up at the final judgment, you're like, there's the gold. Jesus's. It's like, okay, great. You're in, right? He says, you think you're so beautifully clothed, you amazing Laodicean black wool tunic-wearing guys, right? But you're naked. None of that will cover you in the final day. It's a really powerful image of the final judgment, isn't it? Nakedness, right? It won't cover you, but what will cover you? Jesus' perfect righteousness covering you. How good does that sound? How good does it sound to stand before God the judge who sees the heart wearing the perfect righteousness of Jesus? I think that sounds awesome, right? Or he says, you guys think you see so clearly. You even think you heal other people's eye problems, right? That's what they were known for, right? And he says, he says I will give you the real eye salve, and you're going to see the beauty and the glory of God for the first time. And then he gives one last gift here that I think is so beautiful in verse 20. Take a look at it. We're going to have this be our call to communion. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a really cool image here, guys. And the image is of mutual enjoyment of one another, okay? Because Jesus says here, if you open the door to him, he will come into you and eat with you, and he with, he'll eat with you, and you'll eat with him. It's a mutual enjoyment thing. It's having, having a meal together, which is beautiful. It's just beautiful good news to a church that was just told that they make him sick. Okay? Like, he just said, your self-sufficiency makes me sick. It makes me want to puke. I'm going to puke you out of my mouth, right? And then he says to them, if you'll trust in the gospel of grace, not only do you not make me sick anymore, because some of us wonder that, don't we? Especially when we fall into habitual sin, we're like, ah, gosh, I bet I just make him sick. I bet he's just sick of this, right? What's the offer? If you trust in the gospel, you not only don't make him sick, he wants to eat with you. That's the opposite, right? He wants to dine with you. He enjoys you. He enjoys fellowship with you. He earnestly desires to eat with you. And what's a picture of that? Picture of that is your time in, in daily communion with God and the word and in prayer. He loves that time. He looks forward to that time. That's all the times throughout the day that you worship him, you think about him, you dwell on him, you sing praise to him. It's this time in worship. It's a time of mutual enjoyment. We enjoy, do you guys realize that Jesus enjoys you if you're a Christian? I hope you guys get that. I think some of you, you know, maybe upbringing, maybe, you know, you know how you grew up as a kid, maybe family life or something like that, you have a hard time believing that God enjoys you. But in the gospel, he enjoys you, right? So this is Zephaniah that he rejoices over you with loud singing, 
Okay? It says in this passage that Jesus wants to dine with you. And it also is a time to dine with him in the, in, the, in the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to open the door to Jesus and to eat with him and he with us. And that's one of the reasons it's called communion, right? We call it the Lord's Supper because the Lord came up with it. We call it communion because it's a time of fellowship with him. Communion is real communion. The Holy Spirit has so connects us to Christ that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're actually interacting with the real presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Actually enjoying him, and he's enjoying us. And then we call it the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, right? Because there's so much to be thankful for in it. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And I know if you're a Christian this morning, or if you realize you weren't a Christian this morning, and you trust in Christ this morning, I know he earnestly desires to eat this with you. As we remember this, we also remember that it's, it's just a, these are, communion's got increasingly smaller, Okay. This is a small thing because it's actually a foretaste of the messianic banquet to come. You guys realize that? Jesus said that, I tell you the truth, I will not eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. What Jesus was talking about is Isaiah 25, which we have on the screen here in a sec. There's a feast coming. These are hors d'oeuvres, okay? These are small samples of a literal feast. The juice will be quite fermented then. The bread will be quite fuller then. But listen to what the feast sounds like. Isaiah 25, 6. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is where he's, we're really going to eat with him. In a, in a, in a, in a more, uh, well, in a very personal, physical way. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of well-aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all the tears from their faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, and this is what we're going to say, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. If that's what you're looking forward to, then we'd ask you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If you're looking forward to that day because you know that Jesus paid your full admission to it, then take this with us. If you're looking forward to that day and looking forward to that day makes you intent on repenting of all your sin, that you have a desire to repent of your sin and live in gratitude for that amazing gift, then we invite you to take this with us. Let's take the bread first. Hear now the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Hear the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life, of him who has the sharp two-edged swords. Hear the voice of your Savior saying this, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Our sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. I'm so thankful, Lord, for that. As we take this bread in fellowship with your Son, we're so thankful. We pray, Lord, that you would use this as real spiritual sustenance to strengthen us for the week ahead. Let's take the cup. 
Hear the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Hear the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, of the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the keys of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. Hear the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Hear your own Savior say this to you. This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Father, just as the book of Revelation says that the saints are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, we remember as we take this cup that our sins have been removed, that they are gone. If you don't count them against us, you can't see them. You say you remember them no more. They're as far as the east is from the west. You put them behind your back. You put them in the depths of the sea. Why do you given us so many images to tell us that it's time for us to stop dwelling on it? It's time for our guilt to be removed. Father, I just pray for those who have sins in their past, they've repented of, that they just don't feel are gone. And I just pray that right now in the taking of that cup, that you would also wash their conscience clear. Lord, I pray that even for the first time, for those who are here, they're holding on to some guilt of some sin from a long time ago. I pray, Lord, they walk out of here completely unburdened by it, the way that you want them to, the purpose of the atonement, to remove guilt. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't hold on to that guilt in some way. I pray that they wouldn't say I, that they know that you forgive them, but they can't forgive themselves. Lord, you have final authority in this area about sin, and you say it's gone. And so, Lord, as an act of obedience, recognizing your sovereignty, we're going to believe you. And we're not going to dwell on things you can't remember. Pray, Lord, for those who are here that don't yet know you, Lord. I just pray that you would haunt them with the words of Jesus in Revelation 3. I pray you give them no rest until they find their rest in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.